This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And returning guest, Chris Murphy. Hi, it's great to be back. Uh, hopefully everyone's been hearing you, Chris, on our Still Watching series on the White Lotus. Uh, but if not, they should start listening and then um, we get to bring you back for award season chatter, which I know is close to your heart. I haven't been too far away. So, yeah, hopefully people are listening <laughs> to that. <laughs> um, so speaking of award season, it really is award season now. There was an award show. We're recording this on Tuesday as usual. So the Gotham Awards, as we record this, were last night. Richard, you were there. You were in that room where Adam Sandler spoke in an undefinable but very funny voice. And presumably some other <laughs> stuff happened, too. Yeah, it's a voice he's used for a lot of speeches. Um, he did a commencement speech in that voice. It's kind of the Waterboy voice. Um, he referenced, I'm going to do a voice now, because the, the, <laughs> the bit was that his teenage daughters had written his speech. Um, it was very funny. Uh, and but it charming. didn't sound like a teenage girl, to be clear. No, it sounded like his weird, like, southern... SNL character. Mm. I don't know. Like Waterboy? Was it Waterboy? Yeah, it adjacent? Like it's Waterboy basically. Um but that was a that was a highlight. He he was very funny and sort of humble and um he, I don't know, he seems like a nice guy. I I would say one of the other great speeches was Michelle Williams who also had won a sort of tribute award and she kind of unexpectedly actually for me the whole speech was pretty much devoted to Mary Beth Peel who played her grandmother on Dawson's Creek and how she really like opened a young Michelle Williams's eyes to like the work, the life of an artist and like moving to New York City and um it was really touching and and she said toward the end like I couldn't have played Marilyn or you know Mitzi Fableman and she listed some other characters she's played without first playing Jen Lindley and that's like how often do you see someone who has transcended the teen soap they were on in their teens like actually go back and reference that as like a major sort of um, foundational part of their career and identity. And I thought that was really sweet. I love that she shouted out stage legend, Mary Beth Peel. Although when I watched some of her speech, it made it seem like Mary Beth Peel might no longer still be with us, but she's very much still alive and acting and on Broadway I go- oh, all I, the time. I, Goog- I Googled. I was like, what did I miss? <laughs> I just, yeah. Let's be clear. Mary Beth Peel is alive and well and is acting all the time on Broadway and we love her. So, <laughs> but a great shout out. I was seated next to Kyle Buchanan, the projectionist for the New York Times, and he whispered to me like, um, is she still alive? And I said, oh, no, no, no. She died years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was quite wrong about that. Sorry, Miss Peel. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> she was just an Anastasia. Oh, she's so good. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. she's fantastic. 
Um, well, we should probably talk about the winners of the awards that we didn't know ahead of time. And um, Kyle also tweeted the video of Ki Hui Kwan's acceptance speech in which he cried and I cried. Um, that seemed like a real highlight of the night, Richard. That was big. Um, and Kyle also was like, that is the, bit, the, the one lock of the Oscars, he thinks, that Ki Hui Kwan is going to win supporting actor. I would have to agree with him after watching that speech. He's good on stage. His narrative is great. He's great in the movie. You know, he's just kind of the whole package right now um, in a category that is otherwise like, I don't know, Judd Hirsch or Brendan Gleeson, who are, you know, worthy, worthy contenders, certainly. But I think that everything everywhere will get other stuff, too. But like, if it is one of those situations where like, just the way that the things fall, like we can only give it one Oscar, um, that is clearly the one they're going to do, I think. And so this felt like the beginning of that sort of coronation tour. Um, and if he's as charming and genuine as he was last night um, throughout this process, like I think that everyone will be happy about that. It does sort of feel like a, the Troy Kotzer um, method mm-hmm. where the speeches are just like charming the heck out of you. And he's, or, you know, he just becomes this, su- I mean, he's already well liked, but I feel like it just becomes this person who's in these rooms that everyone is excited to see win. And and I feel like this definitely feels like the beginning of that. Yeah. I don't know that anyone isn't rooting for him. You know what I mean? And um, there's no dark cloud looming over it. That movie doesn't have any sort of, I mean, it has backlash in terms of people saying X, Y, Z things about it. I might be one of those people. Um, But like, he's, he's undeniable. You know, he's really good. Again, he's really good in the movie. He's great in, in person. And, um, you know, this is a narrative that like many actors and probably other professionals in the Academy can relate to. Like, I thought I was down and out for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, but, you know, this is America and you can st- you can still come back if you, um, I guess, get lucky. He he shouted her out, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is basically mm. running his campaign at this point, which <laughs> does, not, does not hurt. <laughs> she might also be running the the Daniels's campaign because yes. um, when Daniel Kwan gave his speech, it, I think he said trauma every other word. I mean, it was a very sincere, <laughs> but it was a very sincere, nice speech. I'm not. How did to make he fun pronounce of it. it though? He pronounced That's... it the, the regular American way. Um, okay, it can't be Jamie Lee. Okay. How does Jamie like, Lee pronounce it? Hang on, I've missed this. Trauma. 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 Yeah. Look, Katie, you have to watch the supercut ASAP. I do. It got you to remember her, so it's working, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that movie definitely loomed pretty large. It won Best Feature and and um, you know Supporting Actor, and uh, so it was kind of they they saved the acting categories toward the end, which like maybe they could have put one earlier just to keep people engaged. Because one thing about the Gotham's, I don't know if any of you guys have been before. It's partly a combination of just, I think, New Yorkiness and also the acoustics of Cipriani Wall Street, where there is a lot of talking during the whole show to the extent that you're like, you can tell that people on stage are getting a little flustered because they're like, is anyone paying attention to me? <laughs> um, but the the room went quiet for a certain few key people and the everything everywhere was certainly one of those um, times. Uh, well, I want to hear also about Danielle Deadweiler's when I know she wasn't there on Chinonye Chuku, the director of Till, gave a speech for her, but mm-hmm. that surprised me. I mean, that was a big field with a lot of lead actor contenders. It's a gender neutral category. Um, that feels huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's great for for her and for that movie. It was a shame she couldn't be there. I think she's filming something right now. Um, you know, I don't know what that says to us tea leaves wise about what's to come Oscar, you know, in, in the in the Oscar campaign. Um, because that movie is, you know, smaller in profile. Best actress is really crowded. You know, I heard, I talked to some people at a little after party saying that like 
oh, this is bad news for Blanchett and whatever. And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the Gothams are the the nominations are put together by small committees and then a small jury votes on them. So it's only really five people for each category. So this was just the preference of the five people who voted for for best uh, lead performance. Um, yeah. But, you know, Deadweiler did beat some heavy hitters and it's, you know, it's non-gendered category. So there were a lot there was a lot of competition uh, from both sides, and um, she came out victorious, which was exciting. Again, it would have been nice to have her there to, you know, give a speech that, if it was, you know, as written, was was pretty powerful. Allow me to jump on my Daniel Deadweiler soapbox. For You're a leading her <laughs> campaign like Jimmy Lee Curtis is leading the Daniels, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the first time I saw Till, I truly walked away from that movie being like, any Academy member who sees this movie is going to vote for her. And... I had not seen Tar yet. It's a really good year for this category. But, you know, when we think about what the Academy tends to go for, and the Gothams are not the body to honor a biopic that skirts, you know, conventions and standards. They are not. This is the group that awarded, like, Tony Collette and Hereditary and Brie Larson and Short Term 12, not Rome. Um, So the fact that they went for this and you had a jury comprising uh, a couple actors um, and the fact that you had Brendan Fraser and Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh all in this category, uh, I just think it really cements that she is a strong force in the race and yeah. is not to be counted out because the movie has actually made a decent amount of money, more than Tar. I would imagine it will make more than The Whale. <laughs> um, it, it has found an audience, however limited that is in the new post-COVID world for specialized movies, and she is incredible in the movie. And that's going to continue to be a theme this season, I believe. She also has a good narrative. You know, she's been plugging away for years um, in not obscurity exactly, but like not getting this kind of a claim. She's 40 years old. Like it's, you know, this is in some ways a late-breaking kind of breakthrough. And um, that's, again, a story that not people who've been through that can relate to, and people who want to go through that can relate to. I don't know if people who want to go through that are exactly in the Academy. But, um, but again, like, th- you know, this is an, you know, an intra industry kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, those stories matter a great deal alongside, in Dan- Deadweiler's case, a great performance. Yeah, you, you heard Denai Guerrera pretty excitedly say her name. Viola mm-hmm. Davis tweeted out a big congratulations. Um, and let's not forget, Best Actress has fielded one black winner ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 20-plus years ago, too. So I think yes. there's an overdue narrative there as well. It's a climb. I mean, to be clear, it is still a climb for her. But this is the kind of stuff that builds um, if it goes in the right direction. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Well, 
Well, I do want to talk about something that I do think was a bad day for the whale, which was the Spirit Award nominations uh, that came out last week um, before Thanksgiving. We didn't get to talk about it on last week's episode. Um, David, you wrote about them for us. Actually, Till also was snubbed at the Yeah, at those the were the two big snubs. Puzzlingly. Um, so I don't know if the Gotham's reframe the way we think about that, because as we said, it's a juried award. But um, what, what did you take away from those Spirit nominations? Well, they operate with you know, nominating committees as well. So you're still not getting a huge, you know, consensus with these nominations. But yeah, I think in the case of The Whale, look, it's a divisive movie. And the performance is less divisive, but the way that A24, as we've talked about, has um, very carefully marketed this movie, I I don't think we have a great read on how it's going to play when it goes wide. Um, Which is in like a week, right? Which is in a literal week. Um, You know, it was interesting watching the Gothams and just seeing clips because truly that was the big, the most we'd seen of that movie of him and Hong Chao to date uh, of stuff that's been released. And they're both great in the movie. I don't think it's a huge deal. You know, Olivia Coleman wasn't nominated for The Lost Daughter last year. They they tend to do these kinds of weird omissions. Um, and they do, the nominating committees really do prioritize, you know, folks like Dale Dickey in a love song and uh, movies like The Inspection did really well. Um, so there's always that balance of, you know, hitting the undeniable Oscar contending stuff and hitting the stuff that, you know, needs that boost. But in the case of The Whale particularly, I do think it speaks to the fact that this is not a movie that's going to be for everybody. And Best Actor has a few interesting things going on. And I don't know that Brandon Fraser is a lock yet, uh, to your earlier point about Kihi Kwan, Richard. Even though I I think he's still sitting pretty comfortable. I mean, I do think, you know, everything everywhere getting the most nominations. Between this and the Gothams, I just feel like... You know, yeah. we've been talking about this for a while, but this film is starting to feel um, a little unstoppable, at least when we come to nominations. I think it'll be uh, interesting to see where we go from there. But, you know, these groups are pretty different and obviously still nominating committees. So it's not a huge um, group we're looking at. But I still think it's the kind of momentum this film needs. And it just feels like it's going to keep going this way for them in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. I know we keep talking about Parasite and Coda in this movie, but I, I love thinking of them as a trilogy of family movies that could like could not be more different <laughs> in the way they approach family. And there's something really lovely. I mean, uh, Nomadland being kind of an outlier in that, um, you know, Best Picture winner history. But yeah, keep that tradition going. There's also the, the situation where, you know, a lot of the awards movies that are coming out this fall aren't doing very well at the box office. And like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for Oscars, you know, like the Hurt Locker barely made any money and it won Best Picture, etc. But if the Academy is at all concerned about relevance and awarding things that people have actually seen and, and, and really care about, like everything everywhere is right there. You know, it made a ton mm-hmm. of money. That was a huge story in the spring. Um, and that, that way they can kind of satisfy two narratives, you know, that the movie, you know, they're awarding its quality, but they're also sort of acknowledging its popularity. Well, it also feels like in our new streaming era, making money is more important than it was back in the Hurt Locker days. I mean, hmm. with like Knives Out coming out for one week, doing gangbusters, and then like disappearing to Netflix. I don't know. I could definitely see box office and having people actually having gone to see the movie mattering a little bit more than it did matter, you know, even 10 12 years ago when The Hurt Locker was. Yeah, they were like, ah, Avatar made a billion dollars. We'll get more of those. And then now we now we know what we had. <laughs> yeah. 
It does make me wonder about Tar, which also led the Spirit nominations. I think it either tied everything everywhere all at once or it was, you know, right up there. Um, it's kind of become an infamous box office story from the fall of where it started off really strong and then just really didn't keep putting up numbers is now you can watch at home. So there's VOD numbers that we can't see. That's always a factor. Um, and, you know, Todd Field was at the Gotham's. Uh, I don't think Kate Blanchett was there, but Todd Field was there in his beautiful hat. Daniel Kwan also in a hat. I don't know what that trend is, but um, I like it. We need um, one more. I know. Uh, someone's got to be out there. Sarah Polly, deliver. <laughs> Todd Field was at the Gotham's and won an award for screenplay. Yeah. Oh, see, there and you go. And he gave a speech that... Um, Baz Luhrmann came out after his speech and said, can we just give another round of applause to Todd's speech? Because that was beautiful. And it was all about like living in the present with these films, hoping people see them. This is why awards matter. He said, I know it's all bullshit to use the word best when you're talking about art, but like this is at least a way for like a film to make some kind of indelible ish mark. I mean, I'm badly paraphrasing what he said, but like it was really great and people seem to be really be hanging on 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 his words and that mm. to me is an interesting indication of like if tar is otherwise maybe too chilly too controversial whatever for a bigger sweep of votes like they can at least award that intellect that went behind the movie you know and the sentiment that uh, of like making determined focused art you know and um so i don't know that 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 narrative sort of blossomed in my head last night during field speech hmm. uh, yeah and i think to your Earlier point, Katie, about who was leading these nominations, to me, the Spirit Awards affirm that Tar, Everything Everywhere, and Women Talking are the three indies that are most competitive in the Best Picture race. You know, Women Talking probably would have been right with them in nominations if it were allowed to compete for acting nominations, but it wasn't because it won the juried Robert Altman Award instead, which mm -hmm. recognizes the whole ensemble. So those were the three movies that were in director, screenplay, acting, and best picture. And, you know, they're the movies that have been talked about the most of those specialty releases since they debuted at Telluride or earlier. So um, I, I don't think that they changed the narrative so much as they pointed to maybe a warning sign for a movie like The Whale, which does have aspirations at a Best Picture nomination and a couple acting nominations that maybe won't go all the way in that regard. I've also been getting nervous about women talking in box office, which, like, again, is not the point, but it got pushed. I believe it's coming out closer to Christmas now. It was supposed to come out in early December. Um, and the the environment for, like, a heavy, sober adult drama, like, I think Glass Onion that Chris mentioned being, like, the gigantic exception. It's a movie for grownups that's extremely fun. Um, I, I'm, I'm nervous about women talking getting tarred with that and maybe the whale also because um, it's tough out there. Yes, agreed. Should we talk about the, um, the tweet that made... Well, me and I think a some other sort of Oscar pundits start. What was the tweet? The tweet was about. <laughs> I, I saw all the reaction to the tweet, but I didn't see the tweet. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we're talking about the same tweet. It was a tweet about like guild screenings in LA for Elvis. Oh, yes. the one you texted us yesterday. Yeah, and people going nuts and like giving standing ovations during the movie, and then like losing their minds when Baz Luhrmann and Austin Butler's names came up at the end credits. Like, it, it was one tweet from one person about one event they went to, but like. All of a sudden, I, I I texted most of you and I said, you know, is Austin Butler just going to beat Brendan Fraser? Like, is he not a lock the way I thought he was? Is this like, your Nicole Kidman midnight text of the year, I Richard? guess so. <laughs> yeah, my famous <laughs> frenzy tweet based on text based on like one piece of information. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the whale not doing well at the spirits. I had said back, you know, in the Toronto postmortem, I think that like Brendan Fraser is like, or maybe it was, I guess, Venice postmortem, like Fraser is like laps ahead of his competition. And I, I don't know, like either he's slowing down or other people are catching up. It feels like. I think it's both. Uh, 
right? Mm -hmm. It feels like he's slowing down because either people have not seen that movie or are not appreciating it the way we maybe assumed they would. And people are speeding up. It's funny, I watched Elvis, you know, this Thanksgiving holiday after you sent us that tweet, Richard. And I just felt like I saw it through a new lens. And I kind of understand why it's doing that well, because people want a showy movie that works this season. And there have Mm -hmm. been a couple that have not worked that I won't name here. But I think it's just (laughs) the kind of movie where it's like, they want that spectacle. and, And of course, it's a a sad story, but it's also the kind of movie like you just can enjoy watching, and that performance is really incredible. So I, I think I'm with you after my my rewatch this past week. Well, it's a spectacle that's not empty, and I think everything ever yeah. all at once is that. And Top Gun, to some extent, like we've seen a ton of blockbusters that are just like, look at all of this big giant stuff, and you leave and you forget about it. And all of those movies really linger with you because there's craft and performance in them. It's all the basic stuff that makes movies great, but. Elvis makes it really clear what happens when you have a really great filmmaker and a really great performance do something fun. Yeah. I, 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 to your earlier point, Rebecca, about everything everywhere feeling like it's gaining steam, this is also what happens to movies that premiere earlier in the year that hang on, is that suddenly it's like, oh, people remember this movie, people love this movie, people are getting out there for this movie, and that can be a real advantage when, you know, you have dozens of indies premiering in the same week and not making much of an end to the box office. And then you have these movies that already found an audience and that are now campaigning. And that's a really powerful combination. Um, And if we want to transition to Thanksgiving viewing, Katie, uh, I will say that in my in-laws giant suburban on long drives, Elvis was a frequent topic of conversation. (laughs) How much much they loved Austin Butler. So I want to hang out with your in-laws. If we're going to trust the Quintana, if we're going to trust the Quintanas, Austin Butler's got it in the bag. <laughs> wow. Um, I wanted to talk about Thanksgiving viewing, too, uh, for Wither the Fablemans. Um, so, you know, movies that are small and trying to get out there. And, you know, the Fablemans really deliberately laid low after its big Toronto audience win and is trying to have its kind of surge back. And I don't, it didn't fail at the Thanksgiving box office at all. It didn't do great. I don't know what the expectations were exactly. But it, it's been such an 800-pound gorilla since that Toronto win. And I'm trying to figure out what its path is forward from here. Not that I think it's doomed or anything. I think many people would still call it the best picture frontrunner. But it it feels a little murkier to me than it did a week ago. As far as I'm aware, my parents are not in the Academy. Um, (laughs) But I did watch The Fablemans with them over the holiday. And it was interesting. My mom really locked in on the the marital storyline and the sort of darkness of that. I think she wasn't expecting that from a Spielberg movie and she really liked it after some kind of, at first she kind of got up from the the couch and was like, Oh oh, good. Thanks for showing us that. And like went to go do something and then wanted to talk about it an hour later. Mm. Um, my dad kind of more was into the sort of boyhood nostalgia of it, which, you know, is a way to read that movie. I don't think it's the most complete way to read that movie. But like, so it kind of satisfied two different perspectives at once, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Again, my parents are not in the academy, so that probably doesn't mean anything. But like the movie can be viewed from different angles and those and they're each is kind of successful in its own way. Um, well, Richard, I believe your mom is also going to be running the campaign for Goodnight Oppie is what I heard oh from my your God. tweets. She, so <laughs> I, I'm I telling you guys. She has worked with NASA years ago as a contractor kind of person. And um, well, not that's not exactly accurate. But um, anyway, the movie started. I think she was crying five minutes in and did not stop <laughs> for the duration of the film. <laughs> like a happy kind of like, uh, look at what they're doing. It's so amazing. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. I got teary, you know, you the, the the movie I think very smartly 
addresses that the fact that it's kind of silly that you're anthropomorphizing these robots but like oh well like you still do (laughs) they kind of look like little creatures you know and um it's very i mean it's a little hokey at times but like that kind of doesn't matter it's it's such um a, a sweet and kind of rousing movie um about like exploration and ingenuity and teamwork and et cetera, et cetera, that um, feels like a very positive American story. And Mm. uh, I think a lot of the other documentaries in possible contention are not that, you know, we all, I also watched all the beauty and the bloodshed with my dad and um, we both really liked it. It's a fascinating look at sort of failures of care in America from the micro to the macro. And um, it's really beautifully done with Neon Golden at the center. But like, again, that's some dark stuff about dark mechanics of America. And Mm -hmm. maybe the Academy will instead say, hey, look at what these people in Houston did uh, and these little robots out on Mars did for so many years um, and, and think that that's the more worthy winner. Screaming my octopus teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Oppie was my other Thanksgiving watch with my family and my six-year-old nephew loved it. My parents were both crying. I was crying. I really agree. I think it's got something that might really work uh, for the Academy as well. And and I know, again, we're talking about robots, but, um, you know, I had this, I think it also sort of explores loss, which is something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my own family at the moment, but I felt like it touched on so much deeper than just, uh, you know, a robot in, in on Mars, which is already incredible, but I do think it has this sort of emotional power that um, you, you may not really expect from that movie, and I think it's sort of exceeding expectations that way as well. I've been telling people, if you like the scene in Apollo 13 where they're all in the control room and celebrating, like, pulling it off, like, watch Good Night, Like, it has the real version of that over and over yeah. again of all yeah. the things they accomplish. And every time, it works! Well, I also joked to you, Katie, that the lead guy who, like, kind of conceived of the Rover project basically is James Cameron (laughs) (laughs) in look and sort of, you know, comportment. Um, So maybe that, you know, maybe that helps. It's all just leading up to Avatar The Way of Water, which is what I saw on uh, ads during football, which is what I watched over Thanksgiving. Uh, So I have nothing cinematic to add. Um, David, you also took your in-laws to see the menu, didn't you? Uh, Yes, I did. They love the menu. The menu, the menu is, this was my second time watching it. And, I, I hope there's room for for fun <laughs> in this fall season because this movie's really fun, and the the thing I love most about it is it's truly moment to moment. You have no idea what's going to happen, and it, it delivers solid payoffs over and over again. And I think you know rewatching it, there were a few actors that I, I wished didn't fall in the background as much as they do. Like Judith Light really doesn't have anything to do, which mm. uh, yeah, it's Judith Light. She's <laughs> really great when she gets to talk, though. Yes, but I needed two more talking scenes at yeah, least for Judith Light. Yeah. Um, but it's it's got so many people doing great work. Um, Hong Chao is really great, who of course we've been talking about. Um, but also John Leguizamo is really strong. Um, Ray Fiennes is kind of amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure what the, what the status of that campaign is, but I'm surprised he hasn't been talked about more, to be honest, um, as someone who has not been nominated in a very long time. Um and well, yeah, it's just, like if you couldn't get nominated for Grand Budapest, which was the Best Picture nominee, like, is there any hope? Like, there should be, but, you know, yep. this performance is such a um, kind of spinoff of that in some way. Like, it's like his new phase. Um, the dark the dark spinoff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's a movie that I really feel delivers, like, a crowd-pleasing experience. And it was a pretty packed theater, which was nice. Um, and Yeah. 
it's it's doing well. It's made eighteen million dollars, uh, which, as of this recording, is more than Strange World. That's Oof. bananas. Uh, wow. I haven't seen Strange World. I hope to, but maybe we'll talk about that at some point. So if we want to talk about box office, we don't have official numbers for the one-week uh, run of Glass Onion, which is uh, out in theaters before it hits Netflix at Christmas. Um, but the kind of anecdotal evidence all over the country was that people were just lining up to see this thing. Uh, it's a strictly limited release, so it will not be in theaters by the time you hear this. Um, we talked about it some last week. We talked about, about Janelle Monet. I mean, I think there's the questions about the Netflix strategy, but also this is such a huge boost to that movie uh, as we keep talking about grown-up movies that can't succeed, Glass Onion is a huge victory. Yeah. <clears throat> my my boyfriend usually goes to a movie on Saturday, like, late morning, so kind of the, usually the first showing. And he had to go to a different one because it was sold out, like, wow. at, like, 11-something <laughs> in the morning. You that's know? awesome. Um, so, you know, that's one theater in one part of one city. But, like, um, there clearly was a high demand for that movie. And, you know, I don't understand the financials of Netflix enough. I don't understand their business strategy enough to say, like, why are they doing this? Why aren't, why aren't they putting it in theaters longer? I know they have their reasons for it. But, like, as a little early indicator of interest in the movie, like, obviously, it's high. And um, I don't know if that translates to um, awards necessarily. But, like, it seems like the many, many, many millions of dollars they spent on acquiring this title uh, was worth it in some yeah. in some way. There just seems to be so much power in not needing to report your box office, not needing to sort of yeah. follow the traditional patterns of theatrical releasing. Like they can take these risks and it really worked for this one. And they don't have to answer to why it was only for a week, you know, and and obviously traditional theatrical companies cannot play fast and loose like that and, and take a risk that did work in this in this time for them. So I'm 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 expecting they'll they'll sort of do this method again with something Truly else. Truly best of both worlds, yeah. 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 It really makes me wonder if um the next glass onion because they or the next knives out because they bought two of them um will get a long, longer theatrical run. Like I think knowing what Netflix will do with theaters in the future is hard to predict. But um you know, I think if you're Ryan Johnson, you see how well your movie does. And knowing that Knives Out was such an in-theater hit, um, you want to get as much of that as you can. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Well, to look ahead in the calendar, um, Chris, we have brought you in as an expert on a movie that is opening in a few days and that uh, none of the rest of us have seen seemingly um, deliberately. Emancipation, the Apple movie starring Will Smith, uh, many of us thought it wouldn't be released this year at all. And then they kind of started slowly rolling it out. Um, you talked to Anton Fuqua, the director, about it. Um, having seen Emancipation, do you think that it's going to draw people in after this kind of strange rollout it's had? Wow. Well, I've got to say first, the tales have turned because now I've seen something that you all haven't seen. <laughs> this literally never happens. Um, and uh, I'm taking that. Uh, I think this is a very complicated movie, I think, for a number of reasons. I think there will be a lot of eyeballs on it just simply because it's Will Smith's return post-Oscar slap. Um, and... The subject matter, I'll say, having seen it, it's really incredibly intense. It is incredibly violent. It is brutal. It is unflinching. It is unsparing. Um, I will say, after my first viewing, 
I was not really hot on it. I thought it may have veered too much in the direction of brutality. It's, for those who don't know, it's a slavery epic about this man, Whipped Peter, who is enshrined in the history books. Uh, He's an escaped slave who his back is completely ravaged by whipping scars. And there's a really sort of salient photo of him that's very difficult to look at um, that uh, galvanized abolition and really sort of helped set in motion, you know, the freedom of enslaved people in our country. Um, And like that photo, the movie is similarly very difficult to watch and very triggering, one might say. I mean, that word, you know, people hate that word, but I think that's a totally fair word to use. So, yeah, I, I've i got to say, after watching it, I I was mixed to negative. But then after talking to Antoine Fuqua and interviewing Will Smith and uh, two of the other stars, Ben Foster and Charmaine Bingwa, I will say I left my conversations with them uh, more positive on the movie, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, specifically with Antoine, because he really explained where he was coming from in terms of his approach to making the film. I mean, we mentioned Denwell Deadweiler earlier this episode and Till, which is about, you know, another sort of brutal, terrible atrocity that happened in our country, re Emmett Till. And that filmmaker made a pretty specific choice not to show or showcase any of the actual violence on screen. And there've been a lot of very interesting interviews about that decision. Um, And instead focusing it on Mamie Till and Danielle Deadweiler's character. And it felt like Antoine Fuqua went into the exact opposite direction (laughs) with this film, which again is fair. It's, you know, he's an auteur. He's allowed to make the decisions that he made with emancipation. But yeah, I think it's going to be almost as polarizing, if not more polarizing than Will Smith's Oscar slap. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a high bar. Yeah. Ooh. I Yeah. Um, but I, that being said, I you know, it is artful and brutally beautiful in its own way. It uses a pretty specific black and white palette. Uh, the DP, Bob Richardson, does some really incredible work um, in terms of colors and framing. Um, and it does not really look like anything that I've seen before, although it very much is. It's funny. Will Smith was on... The Daily Show um, this past week, and he said that he's not making a slave movie. It's a freedom movie. I would counter it's definitely a slave movie. Like, (laughs) there's no way around that. Um, And there are definitely questions as to whether we even need to sort of repeat these narratives, whether, you know, we've had glory, we've had 12 years of slave. What is the benefit of telling these stories specifically that are entrenched in violence and where violence seems to be sort of the main part of it. But after talking to Antoine, he said, look, we've got to look at our past. These things happened. Um, to that point, I do think there's one scene in the movie that I I don't know there, that involves an alligator. Who's to say? Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I'll let viewers um, decide <laughs> the, once the they see it. The swamps are vast. You never the know. The swamps are vast. <laughs> things are dangerous. Who knows? I wasn't there. But um, <laughs> I, I will say his point and I guess Will Smith's point on The Daily Show that we can't ignore history, we can't ignore the past. And part of that past is unimaginable violence against black men. I do think that's a fair point. So I'm I'm interested. I I was pretty mixed to negative and now I'm decidedly mixed on the film. Um, but I do also don't think it necessarily is going to be a big Oscar player, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been the question because Will Smith is 
cannot go to the he can be nominated, but he can't go to the Oscars if he is nominated. And, you know, for someone to be nominated immediately after winning like that is often a, a tough part of clear anyway. Um, but some of the early talk about it when they were first saying they were going to release it this year was that he really is good in it and that it that seems like it bears out. Yes, I, I, he is good in it. He is good. He's he's playing with Peter. He has a Haitian accent because Peter is Haitian. Um, I will say something that I don't think really works in his favor in terms of a nomination is that he doesn't really speak all that much. I mean, the first half of the movie is basically him, you know, escaping from slavery. So he's alone, more or less, running through the swamps of Louisiana. You know, there are not that many. Most of the talking actually is from the white supremacist slave master character Ben Foster in the first half, mm. um, which I don't necessarily think bodes super well for Smith. Then things shift in the second half of the movie and it becomes more of a just war epic. Um, and he gets some more meteor dialogue and some meteor scenes. But he is, it's a lot of, it's a lot of face acting. It's a lot of, it's a lot of tears, which, you know, Will Smith is well accustomed to at this point. Um, and he does a really, he does acquit himself quite nicely, but I definitely didn't leave. I left more thinking about Antoine Fuqua and the direction of the film and more so than Will Smith's performance. Hmm. I mean, DiCaprio did win an Oscar for not talking much and enduring a lot of stuff. And fighting a wild animal. Including also. animals. And eating, yeah. eating bison liver. Yeah. And there's a lot of Revenant. It's, a, it's an interesting mix of like glory meets the Revenant meets John Wick at times. It's a really, it's a very specific movie. And I'm a big fan of Antoine Fuqua's previous work, Training Day, um, particularly. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's definitely been done before. And I think maybe in a perfect year where, you know, Will Smith didn't have this sort of baggage that was on his shoulders going into the season. He might have a real shot. Although I do think that the tides have definitely turned a bit. I think there was a lot of, you know, fair backlash to the Hollywood Reporter article that sort of lumped Will Smith and Letitia Wright in a category with accused and alleged, you know, abusers and whatnot. So I, I don't know. I think the narrative might be shifting, but I don't think the movie or the performance is strong enough to get over that pretty considerable uh, hill. I think to your point, though, Chris, you have a lot of people doing interesting work on this movie. And Smith has done a few interviews this week where he's really tried to emphasize that he doesn't want what happened at the Oscars to take away from what everyone else brought to this movie, um, divisive as it may be. So I think we can all hope that we're not just in for weeks of slap discourse yeah. <laughs> with this movie coming out because clearly there's a lot to talk about. Um, and by the time this podcast is out, Rebecca and I will have seen it. Um, so there will be more reactions soon to come. Yeah. I mean, there were points where I literally had to cover my eyes and like could not look at the screen. That's sort of how visceral and how intense the violence and the brutality is. But, you know, maybe I'm pretty soft. So who knows? Maybe I'm, you know... I'm open to. Did other you close your eyes in the Revenant too? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Mm. I barely got through the Revenant. <laughs> I like, huh. I'm, uh, Chris, having watched the Daily Show interview, though, it does seem like uh, Will Smith has successfully kind of gotten the conversation to move away from the slap, which I think everyone is eager for. Like he's he's apologizing for it. He's taking ownership of it. He's got a new movie that gives you something new to talk about. That feels like it may have been successful here. Yeah, I do think. I mean, he does definitely talk about the slap um, in the Daily Show interview, but then very successfully sort of pivots to the movie towards the end of the conversation. And I think, you know, I think we're living... I'll say it. I think we're living in a post-slap society. I don't think there's that much more discourse <laughs> that we can frankly have 
And yet, I'm going to sort of vaguely contradict myself here. The movie is so much about violence and about, you know, atrocity from man to man and and about, and and it is so violent. It's hard to sort of forget while you're watching it that, you know, in the last calendar year, we saw Will Smith smack, you know, a colleague, another black man um, in the face on national television. So I do think while we're definitely, you know, it's in the past and I think we need to move on and get over it and, you know, look to the future. I do think it's very fair to, um, and I talked to Antoine Foucault about this, to to bring up the fact that, you know, we're dealing with a sort of really intense, brutal subject matter. And, you know, there was an incident Definitely not of the same scale in any capacity, but there was an incident of violence that we all saw happen that involved Will Smith. So it's, it's again, it's, compli- it's complicated. <laughs> the slap also feels like it happened two years ago. Uh, Actually, based on the seven, way this I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's not all. this decade. I can't. No way. <laughs> That does it for today's show. Uh, by the time you hear us next week, the New York Film Critics Circle will have voted. Richard's Top Ten will be out. So it'll be an all Richard Lawson Explains Himself uh, episode next week. Look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter, HWD, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich. And Richard? Rylaws. And David? David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca? Becca M. Ford. And Chris? Chris Tris. And also, once again, please listen to Richard and Chris on The White Lotus on our Still Watching podcast. There's two more episodes left, and uh, it has been really great, and they've been really great at it. So Things are getting spicy. Things are getting very spicy. (laughs) Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best early preview of the Vanity Fair Hollywood issue goes to Katie Rich. Look at all of this big, giant stuff. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.